Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick. This is episode number 209 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast, brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc, where you can also check out Danny Barnes and the dog David Grisman's podcast, Acoustic Encounters. Highly recommended. Highly recommended. As is my guest's new album this week, Old Caneback Rocker by the Daryl Scott String Band. I mean, Daryl Scott is just one of the best songwriters out there in, in, in this genre of music. His album with Tim O'Brien, Real Time, is one of my all-time favorite albums. And, of course, friend of the podcast, Matt Flinner, plays on it as well and in the band. So, great album. And if you uh, are wondering which songs are featured on the podcast, you can just look below and click the link right there. It'll take you to where to buy the album. And, again, I always recommend buying it. The album is available. All the songs are available streaming on all the platforms and all that good stuff. But again, if you can support the artist, support the artist. Uh, we do talk about a very controversial mandolin subject. It's the first time this has come up on the podcast, the capo. Um, and my feeling on the capo, and 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 I think Daryl's as well, is when you hear it is, you know, it gets brought up on the Mandolin Cafe or Facebook posts every now and again, and people seem to sometimes just kind of lose their minds. But here's the deal. Just have fun playing the mandolin. If a capo is going to make it easier for, to, for you to play the mandolin and that's what you want to do and you just want to learn some songs or make some songs you wrote better and a capo is going to help, use it. It's a tool. You know, if you're trying to learn Thiele stuff or classical stuff, obviously a capo, you're going to need, you're going to need every note you can get on the neck of that mandolin. So a capo's not going to, a capo's not going to work out, but if you want to use a capo to learn, play and sing, use a capo. Um, and there's a great spot in this, by the way, when I was editing it, where we talk about leaving warts and all in, in music and then my dog barks. So I left that in there. Uh, my dog blew, you know, I figured it would be silly to edit this part at this exact moment. And also Daryl was kind enough to do this episode while he was driving, uh, through some back roads and we lose service near the end. So we kind of cut her short there. But again, I just want to thank Daryl for, for doing this, especially while he was driving to, um, uh, to Florida. So that was really great. I was doing some driving myself. I spent a few days in Nashville recording one song to go. Well, maybe two songs to go, but uh, I'm so excited. I, I cannot wait to tell you. I've sent a few people who know about this project pictures from the session at Dark Shadow Recording, and uh, it is just mind-blowing to to see the the little plaque and Stephen Mojan at Dark Shadow is that is one of the greatest recording experiences I've ever had. I've recorded in a bunch of studios now this past year and man, Stephen is it's fantastic. If you're in that area or want to go to that area and record, I highly suggest you reach out to Mojo. Um, the the equipment is incredible. His input is invaluable. It was it was worth every penny. And uh, and also while I was there, I got to go to D's and see Jared Walker sitting in with East Nashgrass, or as they were calling it, East Nashgrass Light. And I also got to see a little bit of Brownwin Keith Hines play. So that was a really good time. I always highly recommend going to D's. My buddy Jeff there. Thank you for the beer, Jeff. Um, it's it's one of the best places to see a show in in um, if you're in the Nashville area. So check it out. Also, again, if you enjoy the podcast and you want to help support the podcast, you can donate via PayPal if you want to shoot me a Venmo, or you can join the Patreon, where uh, in the next few days, 
I should be up- uploading the, f- the first full PDF book there. On, uh, basically, it's working on licks 10 minutes a day. And as you l- learn these licks, you'll be learning parts of solos. And by the time you get to whatever length this solo is, you'll have the solo under your fingers. You'll also have a bunch of licks that you can apply to pretty much any tune uh, in, in whatever key you've learned them in, or you can transpose them as well. So that'll be up there. Also, I didn't post the idea for the album of the month yet because I think I have a different idea and I'm just trying to get that all tuned in and see if that happens. And if so, I'll be talking about that next episode. But So thank you so much for the support, though, and listening. Please feel free to share this on the social media. If you don't follow me at mandolinsabeer.com on Facebook or if you don't follow me on the Instagram, it's just mandolinsabeer or also the website, mandolinsabeer.com. Let's get to my awesome sponsors, Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You can learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots Music. Uh, those instructors just on the mandolin alone, Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla, Fe- Marla Feibish, Chad Manning, and Ian Curry. From beginner to advanced, they've got it all. The courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation to tab, play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. Best part is you can join any of Peghead Nation's video courses now and get your first month for free. Just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app. For lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Tone Slab Picks. I used mine in the studio this week. Sounded fantastic. Felt fantastic. I love my Tone Slab Pick. You can get your own as well. And you can just go to ToneSlabs.com. Get yourself a slab of tone. All the shapes and sizes. Bevels. Speed bevels. No bevels. Logos. You want it? They can do it. Go over there to ToneSlabs.com today. and Tell them Daniel Patrick from Mandolins and Beer sent you. Pava Mandolins, dedicated to building for the impassioned player. Pava Mandolins in Austin, Texas. Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new used vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They're in their 51st year. They're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide. They're award-winning, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly.com. All right, folks, thanks so much for tuning in. I truly, truly appreciate it. Oh, yeah, and one other thing. If you're thinking about traveling to Charleston ever, March might be a good time. They're going to be announcing the Charleston Bluegrass Festival lineup pretty soon, and there's going to be a mandolins and beer stage. They do a great thing where there's going to be, they do the main stage and the and the B stage right next to each other, so there's you know hardly any time between bands, and one of those is the mandolins and beer stage, and my band, New Ghost Town, will be playing there as well, so come on to Charleston. Details soon. Let's get into the episode with Daryl Scott, everybody. Cheers, y'all. Got a three-day beard I don't plan to shave And it's a goofy thing But I just gotta say Hey man, I'm doing alright Yeah, I think I 
All right. Well, now it is an absolute honor to have on the podcast just one of my favorite musician songwriters, uh, Daryl Scott. Daryl, how are you? Aloha. I'm doing great. Great. You're actually on the road headed to Florida for a for a songwriter, a little songwriter convention or a clinic? Yeah, festival. festival. I think they have something crazy. Like uh, maybe I'm a little wrong, but not much. Like 160 songwriters in uh, over. Let's see, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Parson. Four days. Wow. Yeah, and it's just everywhere, and uh, but it's also great. To be down, uh, you know, here in this, uh, we're in January right now, and uh, to, to get an escape from Nashville down to, uh, you know, some possibly, well, certainly warmer times than Nashville is, is a good thing to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, man, um, uh, first of all, I have to tell you, it's it's so funny. When I first, the first introduction to you I ever had, I only thought you were a mandolin player and not also just this incredible songwriter and incredible guitar player, electric and acoustic. But I saw uh, a DVD when I first started playing mandolin. I believe it was the Gray Fox uh, Festival um, maybe Bluegrass Journey or something. I think the very first song on that DVD is you and Tim O'Brien. Put one foot in front of the other, stepping into the here and now. I'm not sure just where I'm going, but I will get there anyhow. Yeah, okay, yeah, you're, that's going way back. Yeah, and then oddly enough, uh, a friend of mine named Kevin, who lives in Saginaw, or lived in Saginaw, Michigan at the time, I was playing these gigs, and I'd just gotten a mandolin, he's like, oh man, have you heard this album called Real Time? I'm like, I have not, but I think I, these, I, I saw these two guys, I was familiar with the name Tim O'Brien from just... Um, reading some mandolin literature and then he turned me on to that album and man i have been a huge fan since that moment I, you know definitely one of my most top played albums of all times as well oh that's great yeah we uh me and tim made uh, made a great you know record of just simplicity but also very much uh describing uh, and documenting what we do when we're together we sing real strong with each other and one will sing lead the other will sing harmony or we switch and then same with instruments we switch around on this that and the other and and then we write and then we also co-write together and i think a real time um just kind of showed all of that stuff of, of the two of us and the other thing about real time that kind of makes it uh i think stand out and stand up over the years is just that's two people playing together and there's no bells and whistles. Well, actually at the end, there's a whistle, a train, a train whistle <laughs> that we use, but, but you know, it's just us and we, we can play that like right now because we did right then. And, and uh, we always, we kind of wanted to make a, a, a field recording like, uh, you know, those great old uh, records and recordings in 78 even of, uh, of just people playing you can tell on a 78 they're just sitting in a room somewhere and we the listeners are just happen to catch them and that's that's we were in essence wanting to make a a field recording in my living room is what we did uh, me and tim we are very familiar with the the field recordings and that's what we wanted to make it just a really honest 
in the moment right now it is uh, kind of recording. And I'm glad that uh, that idea is still carrying on. We didn't invent it, of course. And it it's just uh, playing live and playing together and you take your warts and your, uh, you know, mistakes. Uh, but uh, or you also take the attitude and the looseness and uh, the fearlessness uh, with it as well. That's one of the things I think that's missing from so much music, you know, is that it, 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 the, having the warts and all sort of feel is is just gone. Everything's so perfect, you know, and it makes it so perfect. It doesn't feel real anymore. Yeah, I, that's, that's true, because we have the capabilities uh, of fixing things, you know, uh, through, you know, uh, isolation, for example, if if two people were in other rooms, uh, then you can fix the one person's mistake uh while the other one was you know doing okay but uh, like the tim tim and daryl records uh actually all three of them that we we made uh, have us within earshot or mic shot of of each other uh our vocals especially uh and i'm a, such a louder singer in a in a sort of untrained way <laughs> compared to, compared to tim so on that record when you hear me like singing out I, you, you know, you actually, I, I'm being, being picked up in room mics more than Tim is because Tim's a very focused and controlled singer and a great singer at that. And so my wildness gets into the recording too. But it, on another hand, if you just kind of forget perfection for a moment, like, hey, you're not blending so well. Um, but if you get past that, you realize like, no, that dude means it. You know, uh, he's singing louder because... Uh, he it's in his range that he has to and or that he's excited or whatever and those things translate I think they translate uh, a human quality to it rather than a perfection quality well we're, well, we're on the subject of recording with Tim how did you and Tim initially meet let's see you know I think we met uh, actually I'm sure that our publishers put us together because they thought we'd write well together so Tim was with a a public pub, publishing company A, and I was with publishing company D, and uh, and that's some of the things that Nashville publishers uh, used to do. Maybe they still do. Do I don't know, but um, they like to mix, you know, talents or chemicals um, and see what comes out of it. And so uh, that's what happened. We met in a room. I knew about Tim. For certain, I'd been in his audience of Red Knuckles and and uh, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, uh, but we met as you know strangers in a room, and then came out with uh, the the first song we ever wrote. We came out with right then uh, called "Daddy's on the Roof Again." That was on uh, Tim's record at the time that he was working on, and and uh, we always had uh, good luck and good chemistry. I think we. We always were able to pull out a song like every time we sat down to say that that's what we were going to do. We we had a good uh, track record. Um, and just so maybe it's I don't know if it's a work ethic, uh, but we, there's some, something just happened every time we well, it happened on stage too, actually, or it happened in recordings. But it also happened when we're just in a writing room, you know, to write a song. We there's a chemistry that happened that we just kind of get on with the task at hand which which was hey we're supposed to write a song because our publishers put us together <laughs> right. you know and sure. we we more than we more than make the best of it we we get past the part that 
that, you know, technically we're writing, quote, for a publishing company who's going to hear this thing when we're done with it. Um, we get past that pretty easily and we just do what we want to do. But the initial setup was definitely a, a professional uh, publishing experiment. Well, that's, that's, I'm glad to hear that that happened, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so. me too. Uh, and uh, we did real well, and we note, we noted that, too. And so we kept that up. Um, you know, we did that. Uh, and the next time we met each other actually was uh, Sam Bush. Maybe he still does, but he used to do a, uh, I think it was around Christmas time. Maybe it was New Year's or something. But he would do a picking party, basically. And, um, you know, all of all sorts of great folks and players and this, that, and the other. Um, we're at this, you know, picking party, uh, and we're all having fun and good food and drink and camaraderie. And, you know, here's Bruce Hornsby and, and here's uh, Tim O'Brien and here's on and on and on. And so you kind of pair off or sort of, you know, there's one sort of bluegrass pickup group in the living room and then another one's in the den and, and so you kind of just pair off and just, and then float around, you know, it's a cool, it's a cool concept for a party. Uh, and so that's where Tim and I actually, you know, pick together along with some other guys that, you know, as opposed to writing a song or something. And then we're singing harmony and flipping parts and all that. And that's where we kind of picked up on, you know, uh, uh, that we sing well together and, well together and listen well and all that the listening is extremely important uh, as part of the deal yeah that's one of the things I think that some people forget about when they're in a performance they're so worried about playing you know like at jam sometimes they're so worried about ripping out the hot licks that they've been working on they forget to listen to what the other person might have been doing and playing off totally. that, you know yeah that's where the magic is you know it's one thing to prepare you know what you've prepared in your practice or in your playing or improvisational skills or whatever on your own. But Hey man, when you're sitting with somebody else, you know, you bring what you've practiced to the table, but you're also, if you're not responding to that other person, you're, there's, you're really missing an opportunity. Listening is, is half of, of playing. It's not just playing, meaning out it goes. It's also what's, what am I receiving in? You know, what am I hearing the other players do? How loud are they playing? Do I need to play louder? Do I need to play less and try to get them to play lighter? On uh, All those things come from listening. And listening is a very underrated uh, component of, uh, of, you know, I think great players uh, listening to one another is, is, is the key. Well, this band, the Daryl Scott String Band, I've been excited for this release. I had Tim or uh, Matt on the podcast. He's been on a few times, and I think the last time when he was he was putting out a book to the view from here, and um, I had talked to him about what he was doing, and he had mentioned this project. How did this project come together? Right. Well, we've been playing as that exact band. I don't even know if it's eight years, twelve years. I I I don't know. Uh, I remember our first gig was Rocky Grass and uh, where Rocky Grass would uh, and different festivals back in the uh, day and still happen uh, from time to time. Well, like then I didn't have a record of, of, 
of those guys or uh but they wanted me to put a grass kind of band together for a set at rocky grass uh and those same people bren davies on bass shad cobb on fiddle matt flinner on banjo and mandolin and me that that was the band i put together when rocky grass wanted me to you know to do a grass set and and then every time i ever had a chance to play a, a grass set again i would call the same people and you know and it was really good quickly and immediately uh, uh another reason i'll just underline it again is because uh because what we lacked in uh rehearsal and perfection and working things out we made up for uh in listening that listening thing is extremely important there's not a there's not like a, a way to get around that and that's the way we were able to pull off gigs you know uh and on on one level why how you you shouldn't have been able to pull it off in in a particular way but uh so anytime i've had a chance to play what was to be a you know a, a string band or bluegrass band kind of four piece thing um it's always been with those same people and and i've always made sure like we we're available so that i could say yes we could do that day because that's uh those are the ones i want to play with doing this these kind of sounds and stuff and there's uh, there's plenty of people you know to um to take certain places like we've had to re you know replace shad on a gig or two and um and some some gigs we've had to do without matt and so we just do it as a trio so we're flexible but i i'd have to hand it to rocky grass back in whenever it was that uh gave me my first you know band slot and these are the guys these exact people are the ones that i chose and then fly through the years a little bit i did a live record at uh, station in with these guys it's been rainy and windy for seven days straight I've been going to bed early and getting up late. And then that became Live at the Station and the same band. Uh, and then uh, fly through the years to this record. And I always knew I wanted to get in the studio with them. Um, I also knew that I wanted them to bring in tunes. So that's why Matt brought, brought in one of his tunes. And Matt wrote uh, a tune together, uh, and then Shad brought in a song of his own. Uh, so that, and then, uh, so that element of people throwing in a song of their own and leading it and all that stuff. And then the other concept was, I wanted uh, to sing. I wanted everybody to sing harmonies because a lot of times on these uh, pickup dates, you know. Uh, we are not singing harmony because we haven't worked out harmony. We're great players and and can make up things and listen and, and kind of get through a set. But singing requires a, a little more uh, familiarity and focus. And you actually have to know the lyrics and you actually have to know the timing. 
uh, of the singer and all that stuff. So uh, I knew that I wanted all of us to sing harmony on this record too. That was the other other part about this particular record. What was the tune that you and Matt wrote together? Let's see. We call it Fried Taters. Fried Taters. Fried Taters. That's what I was wondering if that was the one. That's the one that's got the uh, the uh, Buddy Rich lines in it, right? Did you say Buddy Rich? Yeah. Well, you said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> just for the court the court record, you're the one who said it. Yes. And I just re- I repeated it. That's all. That's all. Do you want me to delete that? No, no. Okay. At all. all right. Tell right. Me, <laughs> tell me this: How did you know they were Buddy Rich things? Uh the uh, the clams. That was a. Uh, I, I was a drummer before I played mandolin, and I. Um, oh. Yeah, and so when the internet came out, uh, that was one of the first things I think somebody sent me was the uh, the Buddy Rich bus rants. Yeah, same here. I, I know. As a matter of fact, first time I ever heard of it was through Sam Bush uh, when I was uh, one of the first grass like things I played in was the Sam Bush band with John Cowan. Uh, and, uh, and I was a guitar player for two seasons with, with Sam and John. And uh, we'd be hanging out or rehearsing or whatever. And that's where I first heard those tapes. And uh, they've just stuck in my mind all these years. I mean, those tapes are famous. And uh, <laughs> yeah. so, yeah, so I'm glad you picked up on uh, what you picked up on. That's what we intended. That's great. A couple things, too. You're such, you yourself, too, are just, you're such an incredible songwriter. And I was wondering how the song Southern Cross came up, because, again, you probably could put out 15 albums of tunes you wrote that are, yeah. that are fantastic. But I always find it interesting when somebody who's such an incredible songwriter like yourself picks a cover tune. <laughs> First of all, I, I do that thing, that Pete Seeger uh, idea of uh, being asked, like, hey, how do you become a, a good songwriter? And, and Pete Seeger's answer was uh, learn a thousand songs of other people. You know? and, and what happens when you do learn, let's say, the thousand songs or whatever, is you inter- I, they become internalized. And so... Uh, you you learn the you know the melody you learn the choruses you learn the, uh, the the breaks you learn the intros outros you learn the general semantics of songs when when you learn one thousand songs of others uh, and then to me it kind of becomes a 
uh, a card catalog of information so we can go back and find out, well, what happened in this murder ballad? How'd they end this thing, you know? Or this gospel song, how, you know, how did they end, how did they start this thing? Or we can go to our card catalog of the thousand songs of others and help solve our own problems once of songs once we, uh, when we get in trouble and need to find out what Joni Mitchell did and, you know, this song or that song and what Peter Owen did and all that and uh, Midnight Moonlight and stuff like that. So that's one of the reasons. Uh, and so I, I'm one of those guys. I've, I did learn great songs by great writers. Uh, and so they're in me already. And I have, I have great uh, love for playing cover songs. I, I love playing uh, and I've done it, you know, a fair amount. And, and even though if I leave one of my songs on the table, I, that's not how I look at it. I, I see that it was time to get this song on that record and uh, another song of mine that I left on the table will show up some other time. I'm not really worried about it. And so uh, in in case of Southern Cross in particular, uh, I've always loved the song. I remember when it was a hit somewhere in the 80s with uh, Crosby, Steels and Nash and stuff. Always loved the harmony, the the the, the chorus that goes to the four, it switches, you know, tonal center and jumps up a fourth and stuff. And the harmonies are all there. It's a killer uh, version. But uh, one time I heard the song, you know, years later, and it kind of snuck up on me. I was in a place where I was by myself and just that song came on in this, uh, oh, well, it was actually a breakfast room of a, a B and B or something, and there I am alone with the song and the and the croissant, and it just <laughs> and it killed me. I mean, I was listening, especially the chorus. Uh, it just killed me what it was saying, and and it was it, it was other than the harmony, it was it was the best part of the entire song, and it just kind of got me and uh, emotionally, and and. Uh, and I never forgot that moment because I realized that the power that that song had. So how I cast it for this record was um, I knew we were going to do harmonies, like I told you, you know, and I knew that was a killer harmony song. And the other thing is I, I knew I, I was a new grass revival, you know, uh, uh, maniac. And, uh, and I always loved what Cowan particularly did to, you know, bring new grass revival forward. You know, there's great playing in there. There's zero mistake about that. But Cowan's voice is a very particular piece of, of new grass and new grass revival. And so I always knew that I would get Cowan in on that to do uh, the vocal with me. And so there's the harmonies of the band. And then we had a quasi reggae chorus like uh, like Newgrass used to do here and there. And then there's Cowan's voice. So really I was tipping the hat. Uh, t it was a, a tipping of the hat to Newgrass, to tell you the truth. And Cowan was the one who sensed the sound of that to me. And the song was great and, and the harmonies and stuff. So that's that's how it came about right there. Yeah, I first heard that. I heard a duo do it. And it was back when cd stores were like the thing and i remember going like wow i gotta gotta go buy this cd and i'm looking at all the ones and i was like i didn't even look at the one with the cover that looked like it was from the 80s it just sounded like such a classic song and it's on this 
album that, like you said, they put it out in the 80s, you know, and it just sounds so timeless. It blew me away that that was when it had actually come out. Yeah, you know what? That's 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 a quality uh, of great songs is that they're timeless. That's one of the qualities. And so if that song, if we heard it tonight, uh, it would sound fresh and it would sound uh, relevant, let's say, and it would sound uh, important. And it would get our attention like right now if we were shopping in a grocery store and that came over the loudspeaker, you know, while we're shopping. I mean, I might stop in the aisles and just listen to that thing before I, you know, fill up my cart some more. Uh, it's that kind of song and, and it has a timeless quality. Great songs have a time is it has a timeless quality. And that's that's one of the aspects of what makes a great song after the fact. You know, <laughs> right, it's right. not it's not before the fact. It's kind of after the fact. And and that song is one of those. And, and I recognized it that morning at, at a breakfast, uh, you know, bed and breakfast place that I was at. Was there a song of yours when you decided like this project was going to be, uh, you know, come to life? Was there one song that you knew immediately that I, I definitely want to record this song with this group of people? Right. Well, one of the early ones actually was uh, my dad's. My dad's song is on there too, a song of my dad's called uh, This Weary Way. Once I was a slave for Satan, many wrong things I have done. Uh, and I knew that was going to be on here because, you know, I knew the band, I knew the sound, I knew, you know, the song. And again, harmony's going to be on the chorus and fiddle, fiddle opener and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it had the elements. Uh, and I always thought it was really my dad's best song. Uh, and it's a great song. And uh, uh, I knew that one, you know, was going to be in there. Uh, Let's see, Kentucky Morning. I am the one who stayed behind while the others were going away to the mills of Chicago. To the plants of Detroit for the promise of a five dollar day. They Once I, I cast for this record, I knew Kentucky Morning was going to be in there as well. Um, and then it's just a, it's like going fishing. I, I, I look at songs <laughs> that I have and find which ones, you know, could be in this in this set of recording. And then I just cast it. I cast it very much like, I guess, you might cast for a play and there's characters, you know, uh, who would play this character the best. And it's, it's really a casting job. Uh, once I knew, you know, we were going to record, I know who the players are. I know their strengths. And uh, then it's just a matter of finding songs. Uh, and then within the songs, finding the album that could uh, kind of all sit together. Um, and I put it in the realm of casting. 
That's a really interesting way. That's, that's a cool way to hear that. Yeah, yeah. And if you cast a session right, uh, you don't have to worry about that. Like, if you cast it right, you cast it right. Now let's play. Let's do the thing we actually came here to do, which is let's play songs. You know, now it's the easy, It the hard part is over. Uh, casting the songs is part of it. Uh, you know, and like on this album, we, we stayed in a band house because uh, we recorded this thing at um, uh, E-Town, you know, uh, Nick Forster's E-Town uh, thing. Yes, yeah, in Boulder? Yeah, mm -hmm. and his they got that studio downstairs. Um, and then we were playing E-Town later that week, and that became like a no-brainer, like, oh, okay, now let's see if Nick will, uh, you know, that we can record downstairs because we're playing there on Thursday night or Friday or whatever. Uh, and so we, we recorded, I want to say, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, or maybe it was Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, and then we had gigs that weekend and that's, we kind of needed to get our work done, you know, in those three days. And we did. Uh, and then we came back up, seemed like we had a half day on Friday or Saturday or something, a couple of half days and we were done um, as far as our work was concerned. And the way we, we recorded was, um, uh, we played live in, in the studio. So the vocals you hear, the lead vocals, is the ones that I sang or Shad sang while we're recording. Uh, the solos are uh, uh, all happened live. And if we did come back and do something, like there's some songs that Matt played, you know, went down on mandolin, let's say, and then we left a spot for a solo or something, and he'd come back on, on uh, banjo on it or... Uh, you know, there's a couple of times where we mess around, like I'm playing, um, you know, barely playing, you know, banjo, uh, but in a different style than what, what Matt was doing. And, you know, if we're in his style, he's the guy to play it. And if we're doing some quasi, uh, you know, old time sort of banjo something, uh, that might come into my department. Truth is, uh, Shad is great at all, all of our instruments, you know. He <laughs> He really could do the whole thing, actually. Um, but uh, and so that's how we do it. Everything's going live. Solos are going live. The lead vocals going live. What we didn't do live was harmonies. And so that's where we, you know, finish a track. And then if that was the time to do the harmony, then we go ahead and hit the harmony. Like right now, after we just tracked that song. Um, and those, you know, even though even those were done together, so we'd have like three open mics. Uh, in a diamond, or I'm sorry, a triangle type thing in the center of the room. And then those those vocals are going on together, like right now. So we, we took that sort of, uh, we're going to do this live as possible approach to it. And that, which is going back to that um, real-time idea you were talking about with me and Tim. Uh, in that case, we didn't do any overdubs, me and Tim. But... Uh, the idea that you're going for everything, you're you're going for live right now. You're doing this record now, as opposed to fixing it in the mix or perfecting things. You're just getting the best thing you can get off the floor. Uh, and once you feel you have it, you go on to the next song or, you know, add the harmony or whatever. But that that's the that's what was at center of this record was we're going to we let's play this thing live in the studio while being recorded. How did you beat Matt? You know, I think I met Matt. 
I mean, I would see him here. There was a time when he was living, I think, in either Driggs or Victor, Idaho. Uh, and so I'd play Grand Targhee Festival, and there would be Matt and, and, and his group that he had together in that local area. Uh, but where I really, you know, really sat with Matt and met him was uh, uh, a Judith Edelman record. Uh, man, I can't even remember when this was. It could have been mid or later 90s. Uh, and I think maybe Matt was producing it. That, I think that's... But uh, he was certainly playing and arranging, and he, and, and they, he, uh, he had me come in, and Judith, too, had me come in, I guess, this kind of guitar player guy or something. Um, and so I was part of that album band for that, and that's where we got to actually, you know, sit and play and, and, and hang uh, type of stuff uh, a bit. And, and then it just kind of went from there. I mean, I... We never really played again, and probably until that Rocky Grass uh, gig that I was telling you about, um, I just knew, you know, I can, I can kind of uh, hear where a cat is coming from, a player, and and know that, like, if I cast, you know, Shad with Matt uh, as as hot rods that they are, you know, and then there's Bryn, who's as solid as the day is long on bass. And then there's me just doing whatever it is I do, leading these songs and, and playing, you know, acoustic guitar and mostly throwing solos off to those two guys, um, holding down the fort. I know we're going to have a good, you know, all the ingredients are really good to make even a set uh, that we hardly, we haven't played before, but we're, we're probably, there's probably nothing to fear, especially, you know, let's, if you have Matt, and Shad is your lead players, let's say, taking breaks or doing intros and all that stuff. You know, you're you're well covered. Right. You're in a really <laughs> you're in a really good situation. And me and Bryn are always really solid together. And so we're holding down the fort while these other guys are uh, you know, I just look at them and off they go into a solo. So we don't even plan like who solo wins or, or whatever. So it has a loosey goosey quality to it, but it also has uh you know, they're all great improvisational players, and that's that's the kind... I hear that in a player. I hear, like, oh, you need to know every note. You know, there's some players who need to know everything in advance, and then there's other players who get the skeleton of the song, and then, and then now let's go play it. You know, like, we've learned the skeleton. Now let's go dress up the skeleton. Let's go, let's go perform this thing because we've been given a gig. And... Those those players in that string band are 100% that kind of a player, and I gravitate toward those folks. You know, I I like rehearsing as much as anybody, I suppose, but we just simply don't get to do it very much because, well, in our case here, uh, Matt lives in Vermont, uh, Shad and I are in basically Nashville area, and Bren is in Oak Ridge near Knoxville, so we're not just sitting around rehearsing with each other but we do book gigs and then um and everyone's really good at uh recalling you know the tunes and and we watch each other i call solos out out of the blue in some ways um and everyone's ready everyone knows that to be on their toes and me too i'm going to be on my toes and it's that kind of a vibe and feeling going into uh you know a, a, a set 
or in this case, a recording. Are you guys going to be doing any tour dates for this album together? You know, it's it's the funniest thing. I'm very un uh, regular, irregular. <laughs> uh, so you know, I have we recorded this thing in 2019, and it took me till August of 23. So there's four years later. Uh, to put the thing out and I had it for four years um, and we had some gigs in between you know once the lockdown let up enough you know we did maybe two or three four things per year and last year when we had the record out we did two things we uh, we only had two plays and that was um, uh, winter grass in February I think it was uh, of, of last year 23 and then we had uh, Grand Targi in uh, August of 23. Those were our two gigs. Um, and right now, uh, we don't have anything booked for next year, but uh, I, I, I hear word of maybe a couple of things brewing. Uh, so, you know, we're not the guys in a van or a bus or anything else uh, heading out and doing, you know, 20, 30, 40 dates this next year. It just doesn't, it never works that way. Uh, I still wait for, you know, a, a festival or a gig that wants me to bring, um, the, you know, that sounding of that band, that kind of band and that band. And so, uh, and so when they do, I call us around and see if we can all make it. And then we show up and, and do that. So um, it's a little out of the norm for most releases, you know, more, mostly I suppose they, the pattern is we go out and do X amount of gigs and as that band with that new record. And, uh, but somehow that's just not how it works for me. I, I'd love it to work that way. It just simply doesn't. Yeah. Well, you guys are all, uh, you guys are all super talented and super busy though, too. I mean, that's you, right. You're pretty, you guys are pretty fortunate in the fact where you don't have to just do you know, worry about 30 or 40 gigs in a van where you guys have multiple options. Absolutely. And that's the good news, you know, about that, you know. And so when we do play, you know, we, we have to be on our toes because we simply don't have a rote uh, way of of uh, of doing stuff. Uh, but we we have all enough musicality, of course, and memory. And, um, and maybe we've listened or practiced on our own. Uh, but you know, uh, these, this quality of people, of players, uh, that's, that's what we do. Uh, we can do that. And these people do it really well. And, uh, I just think they're great players. And I wanted a, a band sounding recording to sort of, uh, in a studio way rather than a live way to sort of, uh, document, you know, what we sound like when we do get together, like, like this record shows. When did you first pick up a mandolin? Oh, I I was a, 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 I had a bad mandolin when I was about fifteen. Uh, terrible and and uh, uh, it, you know, I've never considered myself uh, much of a mandolin player. Uh, I love mandolin. I listen to it. I know what the good stuff is. Uh, I just uh, I'm a I'm a songwriter. I'm a guitar player playing mandolin. Is what what I feel I do sometimes is, and it's a different approach. For example, um, I have zero 
problem with using a capo. Like, no problem. <laughs> right, yeah. And I notice in the mandolin world where every other, roughly every stringed instrument, a fiddle doesn't have it. Or a, but um, we all use capos because we're trying to play out of a seek form or a G form and all that stuff. Or a drop D, you know, you're not going to get a drop D sound out of anything other than a drop D or an open tuning, perhaps. So mandolin, to me, I have no problem grabbing a mandolin uh, and putting a capo on it uh, because I want those open fifths ringing because I play more like a singer-songwriter guy than a grasser or anything else, of course, um, or a bazooki or whatever. I, I'm not, I'm not trying to sound like uh, other cats because just very simply, I can't, I can't do it, you know. Uh, and so I don't even try. So I go ahead and get the capo and uh, <laughs> and do that thing. Uh, and mandolin has just been to me something I've had sort of around me at times. Like my aunt and a different uncle played mandolins and stuff like that. Uh, but I was more always guitar centric. Um, and you know, but I, I know who to call to get great mandolin, stuff, <laughs> yeah. you know, I, I don't have to think like I'm supposed to do it, you know, um, you know, I live, I live in an area and a town and a city where, you know, they're everywhere, you know, uh, in terms of mandolin. So on mandolin, I've had Sam Bush on my recordings. I've had uh, Ronnie McCurry, and I've had Tim and Matt Flinner. So I, I, I know who to call. I, I've got really good friends. <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> those, are, those are some pretty good ones. <laughs> yeah, and and you know, and I know that. So and that sometimes I play the mandolin on my recordings too. Do you own a mandolin though? Oh yeah, I probably own three or four. You know, and maybe a mandola and a mandocello, and I have all those things. Mo mostly, I use. The mandolin in my usage is is not like I'm Mr. Gig with a mandolin. I'm more like Mr. Recording with a mandolin. Yeah, sure. so, so, you know, uh, I played, you know, Nashville Sessions for a long time, just being kind of a studio call uh, for acoustic guitar. But then they'd say, hey, bring in that other stuff, too. And it'd be, you know, it wouldn't be like great grass records or anything. They would be kind of music row things or uh song-centric, uh, like, demo or singer-songwriter stuff or publishing this or that. And, you know, I, I break out the mandolin, put on my capo if I need to, and, you know, play uh, a part like uh, that That sounds like a mandolin. Um, that's that's where I did that because I, I did a lot of sessions for a number of years, and I'd bring in, you know, a, a banjo uh, I'd bring in a dobro or this or that. So I, I got to be kind of familiar with a multi-instrumental thing. Uh, but it came from a recording point of view, uh, more than such a gigging point of view. Uh, and and I, I know the difference. When I need great tone and great everything about the mandolin, you know, I call the right people for that. And then if it's something that can handle a the sort of simple capo guy um, mandolin thing, then um, I might I might do just fine. For example, since this is a mandolin subject, you know the uh, uh, Maggie May, Rod Stewart's Maggie May. Oh yeah, of course, yeah. Man, that's one of the best mandolin parts I've ever heard in my life. 
Uh, so I'm a sucker for that sort of open fifth, droney, you know, almost rock a rock approach to uh, mandolin. I love that. I mean, there's other ways to go too in mandolin, but man, it's pretty hard to beat just that simple, you know, fifths and octaves, you know, uh, kind of thing. So, man, I love Maggie May. You know, uh, so I'm I'm the Maggie May type of mandolin player. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll tell you what, man, I, I, I'd be willing to bet. I, I think this, and I was thinking this when you were talking about, you know, just coming up with parts in the studio, but I bet you Maggie May and Losing My Religion by R.E.M. sold more mandolins than probably anything <laughs> in, yes, in, in hindsight, yeah. you yeah. know? That's right, because we hear, you know, it goes mass on the radio and people hear and they wonder, what the hell is that thing? And and uh, they get one and, and find that maybe they can play the part on Maggie Mae, too, you know. Um, and so it, it has its purpose, man. Uh, and the capo has its purpose, too. And there's that's sometimes you wouldn't want a, a bard, you know, B-flat uh, in, in a song. You just tell the guy, hey, put, you know, put the capo on the first fret and play out an A, and there's your fifth, you know. Um, and sometimes that's just the right thing to do. And instead of slaving over the B flat bar chord stuff, you know, uh, get get those fifths to do what fifths do. Do you have a favorite mandolin that you play at home, or if you were to like record that you would just that would always be the one you grab, kind of like a main axe sort of thing? Yeah, I do, uh, and it it doesn't have a name because a, a guy named David Anderson, who used to live in Nashville as a repair, kind of a a high level repair person when I first got to town in the early nineties, uh, he made his own mandolin and he only made one in his lifetime. And he, he was coming across some hard times and just needed to, to, uh, you know, pass it on for some money and exchange it for some money. And, and I, he, he wanted me to have it and buy it. And I did. That's, that's my main mandolin. So anything I've played on Guy Clark records or my own records or, um, any session stuff I've done, that's the one. And it's, it's just Dave made by David Anderson and he made one. So it's not like it exists anywhere else. Cause it kind of doesn't. Wow. Cool. Uh, yeah. And that's, that's my, that's my, the mandolin that, that I've always used because it's very different than mandolin. Oh, I'm losing you a little bit here. Hang on. Hey, are you there? Yep. I got you now. You back? Yeah, we're in a now a small roads in Alabama kind of. Gotcha. Place. Well, let me ask you one more question here, as you uh, so we're, as we're losing signal here, and then you can drive in those small roads. Do you have a favorite beer? A favorite beer? Yeah. Okay, it's funny you would ask that because uh, there's a beer that I had once in England called Royal Oak. Royal Oak. And yeah, and. Uh, I was in the area where they made it, and it was down by, uh, like, maybe an hour south and west of London. And, man, I just thought it was the greatest beer I've ever had in my life. And to this day, it kind of is. And I've got lots of beers that I run all over uh, drinking when, when, when I want to uh, have a great beer. Uh, I like, I like uh, the Belgian beers. I like German beers in Germany because uh, they're different. Uh, I love the English beer. I'm going to be in uh, the UK in about a month, and I look forward to those pints. Uh, but this Royal Oak was just uh, kind of a standout, 
And for a while I could get it in bottles, but then they kind of, it went away. Uh, and it was a great, uh, uh, ale that, uh, had a floral kind of content to it. Uh, it, it smelled great, but it had a darkness, but a sweetness too. And so Royal Oak is what I will say. And I have a, I have a friend who's literally going through that beer book of 1,001 beers. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's my agent, Paul Lore, and he's probably halfway or more through it, and he goes literally, he just got back from Belgium. He's gone to uh, Denmark and uh, Germany's and England's and all over the U.S. So he's chasing it, so uh, <laughs> he turns me on to a lot of good stuff. Um but so I'm very I'm 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 aware of it, and I I, you know, out on the road I look for the I look for good stuff, and and they they're out there. Um, but right now I'm going to say Royal Oak uh, from England, and this is probably 1985. Well, Daryl, this has been an absolute pleasure and honor. Um, I want to thank you not for just doing the podcast, but just thank you for so many years of inspiration, man. I can. If I'm ever feeling like I just need to hear a really, really good song, you, you've you got a bunch of them. And thank you so much for our, all the great stuff. Oh, thank you, man. I've always I've been uh, very pleased that I, I've been lucky to be in some really good things uh, uh, over the years, recording-wise and, and having songs, you know, pass through me uh, and, and great live situations. Like me and Tim spent a bunch of years out there together and playing with Sam for a couple of years. Uh, as well so um you know i love playing with great mandolin players and i know who they are um and uh so yeah i've been a lucky cat some luck there but it's hard work too i think you you crush it no thank you man well thanks for your uh interest in your questions and stuff i appreciate it yeah yeah absolutely thanks for doing it safe travels and uh yeah hopefully i can buy you a beer sometime next time i'm in nashville if you're around i'd love to see you live again so Buy me a beer, man. I will do that. <laughs> Thank you, Daryl. Catch you later. You got it, buddy. Thank Bye-bye. you. All right. Thanks so much to Daryl for doing the podcast. Absolute honor to have him on. He did text me afterwards, by the way, and he gave me a song example that he wanted to, to have people be able to hear. It's a song with Martina McBride that he recorded where he uses the capo on the mandolin to give you an idea of what he means by having all those fifths in place for him. And that is in the comments below. All right. With that, I hope y'all have a fantastic weekend. Cheers, everybody.